welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. We are in first, uh, excuse me, Second Thessalonians in chapter 3. Uh, today we'll conclude our study of 2 Thessalonians, actually the 1st and 2 Thessalonians, the entire series. Um, and then over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to have a couple of younger fellas uh, step in here as I get ready for Haggai and also that series, Living by the Book. There is a lot that is stated in the Bible that you are never going to hear any place else. Scriptural correction uh, is sometimes harsh, uh, or at least it sounds harsh to us uh, when compared to what we hear in the world that surrounds us. Um, this is partly because the world generally, generally views mankind as naturally moral. You know, anything that causes him to act immorally, it is believed to be caused by the outside environment surrounding him. It was either his early childhood upbringing or, or perhaps he is inadequately educated or, or a, a substance that he innocently relied upon uh, to cope with the pressures of life uh, that caused the poor man or woman to act what they would say is unnaturally. Misbehavior. Secular psychology concludes there's nothing inherent inside the man that is flawed, uh, needing to be fixed. No, man is essentially good, it is said, uh, but becomes a product of his surroundings. It's his environment that is flawed, we are told, causing him to misbehave, uh, so they say. So our culture concludes that to blame the individual, that's, that's an unwarranted attack. It's, it's both unfair and it's unkind. Uh, that is one of the reasons that they frown upon spanking, uh, because it's, it's not little Johnny's fault. It's probably mommy's fault, is the way the world views uh, sin today. And it is true that, that every person, everyone among us, is in part affected by our environment. Uh, Christians are surely affected by their upbringing, uh, what our parents taught us, uh, and the surrounding culture that is on every side of us. And, uh, and we do not, Christians do not want to be identified as harsh or unloving uh, so we don't generally identify the person as the problem either. It's because we don't want to offend our peers. We don't want to be one of those people. Um, and a desire to fit in, to, to conform with the world around us, prompts us to readily join in their chorus. At a funeral, we'll lament, oh, I remember Johnny. Four times divorced, had two tours in Alcatraz, you know, left behind a gambling debt and a broken down old Chevy for his widow. Oh man, he was such a wonderful guy. <laughs> and we do so because we ourselves know the pain of losing a loved one uh, and because peer pressure, we don't want to be shunned. None of us is going to pipe up at a funeral, nor should we. That is not the proper time to criticize Johnny. Um, besides, if we did, peer pressure. Nobody would ever invite us anywhere again. <laughs> peer pressure serves as a powerful force for compliance. Uh, no one ever wants to be left out on the fringe all by themselves in their lonesome um, our culture's tolerance of sin, it continues to increase. It's, it's like gangrene 
just spreads and spreads. The word that Paul used in our scripture reading is leaven. It gets in and it just continues to influence everything it touches uh, because hardly anyone said anything negative about Johnny while he was alive. And because your children saw how Johnny lived and nobody ever spoke about it, uh, the kids and kids also conclude, well, it must be okay. Johnny chooses how to live that way. It's okay to be like Johnny. And if anyone ever says anything negative about Johnny, that is dead or alive, uh, Johnny's neighbors put up their hand right away. Don't talk bad about people. You're supposed to be a Christian. Judge not, lest ye be judged. And they suddenly get real religious on you, quoting the Bible and everything. And pagans quote a verse that they know absolutely nothing about. And this is the post-Christian culture that we have been raised in. The culture surrounding us has told us what Christianity is supposed to be. They have given us definitions for how we are supposed to live. And it's a pretty powerful influence on us. Christianity and the Bible are completely contrary to everything most of us learn while growing up. Scripture declares that the man or the woman is the problem. None of us is good, no, not even one. Romans chapter 3. We read later that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It means every single one of us. We know that the wages of sin, that which we earn, is death. That's what we deserve. So none of us has been morally excellent. And though our surroundings can negatively affect us, folks, our environment is not the root of the problem. It's man's heart that is corrupt and it is deceitful. Above all else, says Jeremiah the prophet, and our heart prompts us to make immoral choices it's not our environment. The temptation comes from the inside, says James, the brother of Jesus. In his letter, he writes, quote, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when the lust has, has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Everyone dies because everyone sins. The wages of sin is death. Folks, our, our problem is it's on the inside. Therefore, it is the human heart that needs to be changed not our environment. Christians have actually proven to persevere through very difficult environments. And the scriptural remedy for unruly behavior, so we studied last week, unruly behavior, sinful behavior, the remedy comes through that behavior being exposed. Not by ignoring it, not by justifying it, not by hoping it just goes away, uh, certainly not by sweeping it under the rug and covering it up, but through pointing it out. That's how people know what is right and what is wrong. The Bible points at it. Scripture establishes from... Genesis to Revelation, that we are to discern, we are to judge uh, what is right and what is wrong. Uh, Jesus does warn us in Matthew 7 to not judge hypocritically. Uh, that means don't judge Johnny if you yourself are doing the same or worse than Johnny. Judge not lest ye be judged. And Jesus says, you hypocrite, 
take the log out of your own eye first. Then you will see well to take uh, and clearly to take the speck out of Johnny's eye. Our, so, our society hates it when we point to that context because they don't want to be judged. And in the Bible, social conditioning, shunning people, it's not to be used to silence criticism of what is morally evil in the eyes of God. Uh, shunning is to be used to bend people back, to reclaim them, to return Christians to scriptural obedience and, and moral compliance. This is the reason Paul harnesses that powerful influence of peer pressure in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 3. Last week, he, he strictly warned us to, to keep away Keep away from, the Greek term implies to shrink back, to, to shun, uh, uh, to avoid altogether. Paul said, keep away from any unruly and undisciplined brother who is not willing to work hard to provide for his own. Uh, that means to uh, apply some peer pressure. Apply some peer pressure to the individual. Today, picking up from there, beginning in verse 13, Paul is going to expand and increase that pressure, but while adding a relief valve. There's a seasoning of grace in this passage. Uh, provide the offender a reasonable opportunity. Give them a chance to repent and to save face. Don't just drag them to the front of the church the first time you see them do something wrong and then, and then point them out in front of everyone. You're not going to win a brother back in that way. You'll just embarrass him, and out of shame, he'll probably go away and never come back. Give them a chance to return and to repent. Um, Still, we learned last Sunday that we are to avoid the one who is unwilling to heed the correction to work. This Sunday, Paul expands that same command and applies it to everything he has written in this letter. In fact, our scripture reading earlier implies Christians are to expect reasonable compliance with all of Scripture. What we want to achieve, what we want to nurture, is conformity to the image of Christ. Therefore, what Paul's prescribing at the closing of this letter is social pressure to bring conformity within the family of God. Conformity within the family of God. Uh, because those who belong to a family... Uh, they usually have similar, similar characteristics, right? They, they look a lot alike. Uh, there are exceptions, of course, with physical traits. Uh, you might be adopted into your family, and uh, that, that's just fine because when it comes to the family of God, uh, we're actually all adopted. So most of us here look very different from one another physically, but we are not to look very different spiritually and morally. Uh, in that case, we're supposed to look a lot like our Father, and over time, increasingly like our brother and our Lord Jesus Christ. We're sp supposed to begin to look like our family. Therefore, Christians should look alike. In verse 13 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul writes, But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put 
to shame. Boy, you will not hear that read very many places today. By God's grace, there's seasoning to this. Continuing, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him. That means correct him as a brother. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So the first thing that Paul corrects in this text, it's a discouragement that can arise while we're giving. Last week we discovered there were freeloaders in Thessalonica. We aren't told how many. I imagine it was a small number, but we just don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, And we know that Scripture roundly condemns sloth. Proverbs 6 says, How long will you lie down, O sluggard? Sluggard there is a derogatory term. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Your poverty will will come upon you like a vagabond, like a thief. God suggests if you're lazy, you're going to reap what you sow. We aren't to always absorb the consequences of people's actions. It's good for us to remember as parents. Sometimes your children make a mistake. Sometimes they don't need the bailing out. In our culture, we're, we're very much programmed to like, well, my, my child, my adult 30-something-year-old baby has made a mistake, you know, I'm, I'm pretty flushed with cash. I'm just going to bail them out of it. No lesson learned. That's not what God teaches. And when giving, Christians are always to remain discerning where we give. Um, as I stated during our congregational meeting uh, back last March, we used to give monthly to the Salvation Army. The source for those who fall on hard times. Uh, Today, the Salvation Army has become publicly gay affirming. So, the end of last year, near the end of last year, our church stopped monthly disbursements to them. Um, Does that suggest that we just throw up our hands in disgust and stop giving altogether? No. We don't grow weary in giving because a few abuse our generosity, or some ministries we have known have now apostatized. You don't stop giving. Uh, We simply find other places to give. We continue to give generously. In addition to that, you know, we can't always know exactly what the missionaries and the ministries which we support overseas are doing with their money. We can't, can't always know that. We review the best information available to us and, and let the money go. Do it for the glory of God. Uh, if we've given with a pure motive, with, with the knowledge that is readily available to us, with what we can observe, uh, we, we trust God to handle the rest. We can't become discouraged because somewhere along the line we discover someone has abused our generosity. We simply adjust and stop making the same mistake. A little example is years ago when Rita and I first became Christians, early on, we were convicted, uh, and I don't know for what reason it came upon us, but that we should be taking care of poor people by feeding poor people. Let me look around, and there's so many programs here. I'm like, well, there isn't a whole lot of poor people here uh, by circumstance, some by choice, uh, others by hard luck, others by uh, differing reasons as we studied last week. But America has all these different programs and everything, so we decided to direct a little giving overseas. And uh, over time, having given with a pure heart, over time we start reviewing the literature, 
And I was looking at what they're mailing us, and I got suspicious. I'm like, it doesn't sound in anything that they're doing here that the gospel's getting proclaimed. I don't hear anything about uh, in their literature about sinners being challenged to trust in Christ. Don't hear anything about Christ dying for sins and, and offering forgiveness to the world and looking over their website and other things. I'm like, this group, they're feeding the poor, but they're leaving them dead in their sins. Uh, did we just stop giving? No. We, we adjust. We give to a place where we're more confident in, in the work that they are doing that is actually focused eternally on souls being redeemed, not just on a temporal need that's only going to help out for a few hours. We adjust our giving. In verse 14, we're introduced to a, um, a final exhortation in Thessalonica, a closing uh, word of exhortation. Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. This broader statement, well, not only addresses the behavior of the sluggard described in verses 6 through 12, uh, but now involves everything that has been written in this letter. Paul insists what I have written for you here. It's binding, it's authoritative. Earlier in this series, we learned that Thessalonica had received this letter for what it truly is. Paul said, the word of God, not the words of men. So to disobey to disobey this letter is to disobey God the Father and Christ the Son. Folks, there are many things in life that, that Christians can, can enjoy or, or partake in with liberality. All kinds of things in this creation we can enjoy. Direct disobedience to God's Word is not one of them. One example is sharing a glass of wine over dinner with your spouse. Uh, scripture suggests you can. So I'm not going to try to stand up here and tell you you can't. It may not be the wisest thing for you, depending upon your condition, but I'm not going to say you can't. I'd be making something uh, uh, extra on, Christ, uh, on Scripture. But you may not drink unto drunkenness. Scripture is very clear about that. If you do, you'll have to, we'll have to have a talk about what God's Word says. Clearly says. We are filled to the brim with grace here. We truly are. There is, there is liberty. We're not legalists. Um, we'll even attempt to find you some help if you, if you have a substance abuse problem. We're not going to disfellowship you right away. Uh, we want to help. We're not going to try to disgrace someone. Um, but you cannot disregard Scripture's command. If you do, and if it is repeated, you could eventually begin to feel a cold shoulder. Because Scripture commands us, we who are Christians... This is a command we have to follow. It says, do not associate with an openly immoral brother or sister. That identical Greek phrase, do not associate, was also present in our scripture reading earlier from 1 Corinthians and chapter 5. That was also written by Paul. There some incorrectly conclude that the passage is only addressing the sexual immorality described earlier in the chapter uh, that a man had taken his father's wife. That's included, but there's much more. 
Precisely as Paul does here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, he begins with one behavior, a refusal to work, and then expands it to the entire instruction of the whole letter, starts with one thing, then expands it. Paul does the same in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He starts with one immoral circumstance and then expands it. Giving treatment more broadly, he says, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person or covetous. That means one who just longs to have what belongs to another. Uh, Or an idolater, says Paul. Colossians reveals that greed is idolatry. Or a reviler, or a drunkard, or a swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. Do you not judge those who are within the church? Uh, Paul's conclusion is remove the wicked man from among yourselves. We not only refuse to practice the behaviors as Christians, we don't associate with those who call themselves Christians and do. Rather, these sins bring a Christian's profession into question. This is the reason Paul refers to them as a a so-called brother. And what this type of command also affirms is this. Don't miss this. What this command also affirms is that the influence and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, it ought to be more than sufficient for Christians to achieve victory in overcoming sins. You see that? If you're not to associate with Christians who practice these, it affirms the influence and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit who's taken command of your heart and your life, it ought to be more than sufficient for Christians to achieve victory over these sins. Using very firm language, Paul says, there is no place for them among Christians. The same is true of the list provided just one chapter later in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 9, except Paul uses even stronger language there. He says, do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, says Paul, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Behavior unabated, behavior, sinful behavior unchanged, You weren't washed. Therefore, the one whom we presumed previously was a brother in 2 Thessalonians 3.15 who won't embrace. doesn't mean they won't struggle with sin. There's no one here that doesn't struggle with sin, me included. But the one whom we previously presumed was a brother who won't embrace the correction in these letters. You follow me? That that listens to these letters and says, nah. Really, all New Testament letters. The Word of God. uh, One who will not embrace these principles casts his faith into question. Struggling with sin day to day doesn't necessarily cast your faith into question. A resistance, a rejection of the correction found in Scripture does. 
For the so-called brother, we don't know if he is. We can't see the heart. We can't make that judgment whether he truly is regenerated by the Holy Spirit or not. Uh, but we can see the behavior. We can observe his or her reaction to this scriptural admonition. How do they respond? Still notice also in verse 15, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Admonishment, the call for admonishment suggests he deserves a gentle warning or two before he or she is ostracized. Suggests there shouldn't be a rush to make the person an example in front of everybody else. Rather, it is appropriate to provide a fair opportunity. Go to the person alone first. Why? To preserve their reputation. Out of love for your brother or sister, reminding them with admonishment from the Word of God, uh, you can't claim to be washed. You can't claim to be set apart to God and holy uh, and justified in the name of Christ. You, you can't live a life in perpetual disobedience to Scripture or, you'll, or you will by your continued actions give evidence that you're a false convert. It's appropriate to give a fair opportunity to comply with what God has said. A kindness, a gentleness, a word of exhortation rather than a word of condemnation. But how many chances do they get? Interesting question. How many chances and how long do they get? Not real long, folks. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I wrote to you not to associate with immoral people. And do you not know that a little leaven, means a little influence, will eventually influence the whole lump of dough? It's going to spread. Therefore, if it is tolerated, we must fear it will penetrate and that it will spread and instead, Paul commands, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Think of that. We think of some of these sins that uh, many of us, others whom we love, have struggled with. Uh, and our culture wants to point at the behavior. And not to pick on it today. Not to pick on it today at all. But with drunkenness. Does Paul suggest that the problem is the bottle? Is the problem, is alcohol the disease? Is the person helpless in the Holy Spirit to respond? No, that, that's a different gospel. Because he who is in Christ is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There ought to be a change. That doesn't mean there won't be a struggle. But there ought to be a change. Paul doesn't describe the individual as a victim who has a disease that they can't control. He describes him as a wicked man. It's sin. Check this out. This is, this is for those who think that Christians or the church should just indefinitely embrace the one who refuses to heed biblical correction. Just... just continually again and again and again. Just let them abuse uh, the grace and, and the love and they come back week after week for years and years and years. Um, the person who, he, who does not heed the correction. The factious man in Titus chapter 3 and verse 2, one who causes discord and controversies and strife. Uh, Paul says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. That's it. Cut it off. A first and second warning. The individual ought to have a Holy Spirit governing their behavior. So the window of opportunity for the offender to heed the correction 
it's relatively brief. It's not indefinite. Because if you're going to continue to turn a blind eye to sin, others in your flock, your children, will conclude, we've got permission to do the same. This is acceptable behavior for a Christian. And they will grow up thinking that that is how a Christian looks. But it's not how a Christian looks. We've been redeemed. We've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've had our sins forgiven. And all we've got to do is just make it a little while longer and contend for the faith and Christ is going to return and set everything right. It's not impossible what Scripture asks from us. This is really, really important for the church to know today um, because we're, we're all supposed to have the same attitude concerning this. Family members should all look pretty much the same. We share the same moral compass. It's the Word of God. So there, there should be uniformity among our behavior. You know, we, we aren't 150 different individuals espousing our own conflicting ideas about what it should be deemed right and what should be deemed wrong. That doesn't fly. We, we don't get to make it up as we go. Um, our compass doesn't change. It's true north. It's pointed towards the kingdom. You go out into the culture, their compass will change on a whim. What is right and what is wrong. We're not like that. Rather, we're becoming carbon copies of the king. In fact, if I were going to rename this message today, gave it the name earlier in the week, I like that. Carbon copies of the king. That's what we're to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 16 says that, we have the same mind as Christ. It's a spiritual mind. It's not a natural mind like others have. We have a spiritual mind. And for this reason, us all having the same spiritual mind, we're able to dwell in harmony. Don't miss this. We've got a cause and effect here. If we are willing to heed the scriptural correction and obey what is being called for in this passage, there will be an effect. And harmony is the effect of Paul's prescription for disassociation from that which he identifies as unruly behavior. Spiritual harmony within a flock, within a church, is the result of discipline, as we've seen in verse 16. Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. That is the expected result. If there is a disassociation and a harmony, a spiritual harmony in what God's word says and how the Christian reacts, then we will obey Scripture and what it says. There will be a disassociation from the unruly of the world. Remember, those who are claiming to be Christians. They're trying to win the rest. Don't lose sight of that. But a disassociation from the unruly will grant, by the grace of God, peace continually in every circumstance. Everything that we encounter day to day, there will be peace. He says, the Lord be with you all. Folks, disassociation from an unruly brother or sister is how God preserves peace and unity among those who are left. And morally, we should all progressively and incrementally begin to think and act the same. Families should look alike. 
John Calvin uses some pretty strong language. In reference to this passage, calls a disregard for Scripture a contagion that spreads. And in some pretty strong language, he states this, quote, By this we are taught that we must employ the discipline of excommunication against all the obstinate persons who will not otherwise allow themselves to be brought under subjection and must be branded with disgrace until having been brought under and subdued, they learn to obey. That's how the Reformers spoke about this. Boy, that, that's tough language. I'd like to say it nicer. I'm going to say it a little nicer. Visitors of a Christian church, they should learn from hearing the Scriptures. But by hearing the Scriptures preached faithfully what is and isn't acceptable in the Word of God. And through instruction, they must be provided with enough clear information to discern whether or not they belong to God's family. They should hear enough information to determine whether or not they're a member of the family. You can't do that by just remaining quiet about this. You can't help people by not reading and exhorting others from what Scripture says. Does it appear from what we've studied together in this chapter uh, that Paul implies a preacher should refrain from being clear? Should, should I or any other preacher be concerned uh, that a warning like we heard last week, you know, he who is unwilling to work, neither shall he eat, should we worry that are declaring this clear biblical exhortation that we might drive visitors away? No. Not at all. I might be a little concerned about driving them away myself. How I come across and, and whether or not I show a true love of Christ. I'm, I'm concerned about me. I'm not concerned about the Word of God driving people away. Not concerned at all about the content of this letter and what it says. If they are unwilling to obey and embrace the instruction contained within this letter and these letters, the Bible, am I worried about them departing after worship and never coming back? No. No. Because if they won't accept what God has said after the first or second warning, we're not supposed to be associating with them anyhow. Christ is calling, a, calling to himself a holy people who are redeemed by his blood, who are indwelt by his Holy Spirit, and they look a lot alike. They look a lot like Jesus over time. So the idea of a seeker movement... You know, people who supposedly are visiting a church to seek God, um, but who are also offended and driven away by what God has said, it's contradictory. It's absurd to suggest that a Christian will be driven away by the Bible. Instead, they will gravitate to it. A sinner, even a first-time visitor, who is by God's Spirit being drawn to confess their sins, to trust in Jesus Christ, drawn to the Word of God, they will embrace and celebrate everything that the Bible says. They'll learn to love it. They'll learn to love us, and we'll learn to love them, and God will be glorified. Jesus taught with authority... A result was that, well, a few followed him. Isn't that something? A few followed him. Not the masses, not huge numbers of people, a few. And our culture will never hear scriptural authority anywhere else 
they'll never get it anywhere except at the church. They'll never hear that as a disciple of Christ, you must work for what you eat, that you can't break into your neighbor's home and take what belongs to him, that you can't engage in premarital sex, uh, that you can't be a drunkard, that you cannot murder your child. They'll never hear that. And for those who at the same time insist that they are Christian, redeemed by the blood of Christ, and are offended by that, major disconnect. The Holy Spirit grants us victory over sin over time. Therefore, the church must today reassert itself as, as the bastion of all divine truth. If there is going to be any hope for America to change direction, to repent, pastors are going to have to abandon the seeker model of ministry. It suggests that success is measured by bigger and fuller churches. And instead, pastors must prepare themselves to offend with the Word of God, even if it drives some people away. We don't have a choice. Is that going to be a problem? No. The people who remain will look a whole lot like Jesus, increasingly so over time. Folks, the, the seeker church movement, just trying to gather in as many people who have no relation to Jesus and, and think that you're just going to love them without the word, it's a complete apostasy. Complete apostasy. We want to win people with love that's only done through truth. And as we begin the series now, coming July 3rd, on building the kingdom of God, uh, I'm very passionate about growing this work that we share. Very impassioned. Uh, about growing this church with redeemed souls. Redeemed souls. But I'm not especially interested in growing Christ's church with a bunch of so-called brothers who are unwilling to obey Christ. Why? Because this passage says we're not supposed to associate with them anyhow. Christians should not look different. We should look a lot alike. Finally, a quick closing word from Paul. He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. And this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. So, so this is only the closing portion of the greeting that Paul writes with his own hand. His other letters suggest he normally dictates to an amanuensis, if I pronounce that right. Uh, that's, that's like a scribe, someone who writes down what you're saying while you dictate. But there were false apostles writing false letters while claiming to be Paul as well. Um, there were forgeries circulating all over the place. And Paul's letters are themselves unique. Those who study ancient literature say, uh, tell us that Paul is especially skilled and lengthy compared to other writers of his day, other philosophers and orators of his day. Uh, one quick comparison before we leave. Uh, letters of other famous writers, like Cicero, averaged 295 words. Seneca averaged 995 words. They're short-winded. Paul averages 2,500 Compared to the other writers, Paul was very long-winded. Still, you could read this epistle, uh, 823 words in about 15 minutes. Frauds were all around. Um, so Paul wrote at least the part, uh, part of the closing section of every letter in his, own, in his own handwriting. To the Galatians, he said, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. 
So for those who had met and those who knew Paul, uh, his handwriting, it was pretty easy to distinguish. Uh, in fact, the phrase that says, uh, this is the way I write, in the Greek it indicates he had a very unique handwriting style. And from the early church until now, Christians knew right away how to spot a fraud. The frauds were destroyed. The ones from Paul were copied and copied and carried by Christians from church to church. And today, archaeology, if I remember right, has uncovered over 10,000 ancient manuscripts, copies of the Bible spanning 1,500 years. We could essentially recreate the entire New Testament from, from only from what the early church fathers wrote in their letters, quoting the apostles. We could reconstruct the New Testament from those, even in the first, uh, late 1st and early 2nd century, who had met the Apostle John. We have partial manuscripts surviving from the 2nd century, complete New Testaments shortly thereafter. The church has done a wonderful job of preserving what Paul wrote. We have handwritten copies spanning every century from the 2nd century A.D. until the, until the time that Gutenberg invented the printing press, about 1,400 years. They are in Greek, they are in Latin, they are in Coptic, they are in English. Do you know what they all say? They all say the exact same thing. God is love, the Bible's true, Hell is hot, and Jesus saves. This is the word of God, not the words of men. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as you have left us a treasure in uh, these two epistles, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, uh, you have shown us that we must just persevere a little while longer. But that promise of your Son in his return is set in the heavens. It will occur. In the meantime, you're redeeming lost souls through the word of the gospel that you might Build a people who want to worship your son. And Father, if that takes a, a little while longer, that's okay with us. And as we attempt to share and preach the gospel and win our families and our friends, uh, we pray you would be glorified through this church, that we would be viewed as a loving, a compassionate, a kind, even patient, yet truthful people. And use your word for the glory of your son. Send your spirit that we might see a mighty work in our day.